would please take your Bibles and open them to Micah chapter 1. This morning we will be looking at verses 2 through 7 as we continue in this new series in Micah, Who is a God Like You? Micah chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. You may be seated, and as we do, let us together seek the Lord and his help as we come to his word. Our God, we do confess that you are the Holy One. You are the one worthy to be exalted and worshipped. And yet we also confess how often we fail to acknowledge you as the Holy One, to worship at your footstool. And we ask that as we come now to your word and we hear very stark and and somber words calling your people to a renewed faithfulness to you, I pray that you would encourage us by your spirit, that you would confront us by your word, and that we would leave here a renewed people called to worship you, to worship you and you alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All rise. The court is now in session. The honorable judge presiding. I understand that's probably a terrible bailiff's uh, announcement, but it is a bailiff's announcement. And you don't need to be a lawyer to recognize or to understand the significance or the impact of those words. Anyone who has ever watched a courtroom drama movie or a television show is familiar with that scene. It's probably one of the few scenes that the film actually portrays accurately in a courtroom, so I'm told. But the bailiff calls all who are present in the courtroom to stand in honor of the ruling judge who at that point enters into his courtroom to take his seat on the bench, signifying that the judge is now ready to hear, to consider, and to declare regarding the case that is before him at that particular time. And we find such a scene here in Micah chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. It is declaring and depicting the courtroom of the Lord is now in session. All the elements of a courtroom scene are found in these six verses. Though they may not be the ones we are familiar with as 21st century people. But one commentator summarizes the, the aspects of a courtroom scene for us. When he says, this poem preserves echoes of the summons to the defendant to stand trial, of the judges coming to hear the case, of the call to recite the charges against the defendant, of the solemn verdict soon to be carried out, and the gasp of horror from its spectators 
its severity. We'll get to the gasp of horror next week when we look at verses 8 through 16. But for this morning, we want to examine everything that builds up to that gasp. Because in it, we find a very humbling and somber and even terrifying scene. The people of God are guilty. The Lord, their covenant God and their judge, knows it and he's ready to not only declare his verdict, but to bring his judgment. Their sin, in this case of stubborn and blatant idolatry, cannot continue. It must be dealt with, and the Lord himself is going to see that it gets dealt with. And we find here that the Lord will bring judgment against the persistent idolatry of his people. And the points for our time this morning, they're in the bulletin, but we're just going to follow and work through this unfolding drama of this courtroom scene, where first we see the judge descends, and then the accusation declared, and then lastly, the verdict is delivered. And may we be humbled by this scene as it's played out before us. May we be humbled by the God who is revealed to be our judge and how seriously he deals with the idolatry of his people. But first, the scene opens as the judge descends to his judgment seat. In human courts, the announcement and the entrance of the judge is a big deal. It declares the one who is holding the authority in the room, in the court. There is a level of spectacle when the judge comes from behind from his chambers into the courtroom to take his seat. No one in the audience is wondering who holds the authority in this room. No one is questioning, you know, who is it who's going to declare the judgment or deliver the verdict? And we find in verse 2 that, that there's an opening announcement. There's a summons. Look at it with me. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. This is the official summons to the trial. And it is worth noting who the Lord calls. It is not just his people, Israel and Judah. It is all people. In a human court, all rise applies to those in the room. Nobody is expecting somebody out in the lobby to rise or somebody across the street to rise. But in this case, in the Lord's courtroom, when it says all, it means all. No one gets left out. Pointing to the reality, to the scope of the jurisdiction of the Lord. Unlike a human judge whose jurisdiction has limits, the Lord's jurisdiction has no such limits. He is judge of all the earth and everything in it. And he calls all the earth and everything in it to listen to the accusations that are about to be made. And also of note is that the Lord plays three parts. He plays the witness, he plays the plaintiff, and he plays the judge all at the same time. He is the offended party bringing this suit. 
He is the one who's going to bear witness to the grave and very serious accusations that are made. And he's also going to be the judge who determines the outcome. So from the very summons, we see that this judge is no ordinary judge. But after the announcement, we, we see Micah's vision of the Lord leaving his chambers to take his seat on the bench. Look at what it says at the end of verse 2 into verse 3. The Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. Now, I've never been inside a, a judge's chambers. But I'm told that the chambers of a judge are practically a large office with some individual rooms for staff as well as for meeting places. I'm it's a very lovely and wonderful place for those of you who may have been in a judge's chambers. But for the Lord, who is the judge of all the earth, his chambers is not some office or some room. His office is heaven. It is the very place where he is worshipped day and night by a myriad of the heavenly hosts. But greater still, it is from this vantage point where nothing escapes his sight. Psalm 11.4 declares, The Lord is in his holy temple. His eyes see his eyelids test the children of man. There is no information secret from the Lord. There is no evidence that can be brought later that he is unaware of. From his vantage point, from his chambers of heaven, he sees everything and he sees it perfectly. He knows everything. He knows it thoroughly, exhaustively. And as we sang in the hymn, holy, 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 we know that whatever decision he makes is going to reflect his holy and righteous character. Again, he is a judge unlike any other judge. Which leads then to the third point of emphasis in this Lord's descent. And it is the, the display of his terrifying power. Look at verses 3 and 4. The Lord coming out of heaven, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. The Lord's dissension from his chambers, from his heavenly throne, is a complete dissension. Everything that we human beings look at and think to be stable and secure crumbles melts beneath his feet. With his very first step, he crushes the very place that man so often dreams of and aspires to reaching, the highest places. And all this language that we read here is very psalm-like, emphasizing, pointing to the incredible power of the God before whom all creation cannot help tremble. When he exits his chambers and descends to his judgment seat. Psalm 74, 15, you split open springs and brooks. Psalm 97, 5, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. But this isn't just a demonstration of God's power as creator. It's also a demonstration of God's power as one who fights against his enemies. 
Psalm 68.2 says that as, ma- as wax melts before fire, something we're reading here in Micah, so the wicked shall perish before God. Or the song of Deborah from Judges chapter 5, verses 4, where the Lord is said to conquer the enemies of his people. She proclaims, Lord, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Creation knows the power of its creator, not only to create, but also the power of its creator to conquer his enemies. And yes, the Lord is descending here to judge, but he's also descending to conquer. Whatever, whoever stands before him has no chance. For if the very stable features of creation like the mountains and the high places are fleeing and melting and turning into water before him, how could any nation or person respond differently? I like what Bruce Waltke says here when he says, Man fe- men feel secure so long as God remains in heaven. When he comes to earth in judgment, they are gripped by the terrifying realization that they must meet the holy God in person. And this holy God we're seeing in Micah is coming for such a meeting. And you and I this morning need to remember this reality about God. He is, he was, and he will always be the judge of all the earth. He is the holy, holy, holy God. He remains that consuming fire, demanding reverence and awe. And he is the one who from his throne in heaven sees and knows and perceives all things. And he's the one who holds all dominion, power and authority to punish and judge all sin. This is who our God is. May we be humble before him and also be humbled by him. Let this depiction of the Lord descending drive us to fear his name all the more. To even learn how to tremble before his awesome power and might. Next in this scene, we see after the judge descends, the accusation gets declared. And this is where things get a little bit interesting, if not altogether scandalous. Because to this point, Micah has been rather ambiguous, and I would argue intentionally so, regarding who is the target of God's judgment and the reason why it's coming. Israel at this point is probably gearing up excitedly for the big reveal. Because given the context, it has to be Assyria. Without question, it's Assyria. Because Assyria at this point is quite literally standing at the door of the northern kingdom, ready to destroy it. They're primed and pumped, ready to go. And then on top of that, Assyria also has the southern kingdom in their back pocket, paying them tribute. This certainly sounds like two strikes, with a third one coming, if not already on the way. You can almost envision the people of Israel, as they hear this word from Micah, saying things like, nice knowing you, Assyria. We know how this is going to end for you. Or, hey, aren't we glad we're not Assyrian today? 
It may have been in their minds, may very literally been rolling off their lips. Until the devastating blow comes in verse 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. If there was a literal courtroom, I'm going to argue the gasp would have been audible, followed by a deafening silence. The day of reckoning had come, but not for Assyria, for Israel. This day in the Lord's court, this day before the Lord and the judge of all the earth, was to put his own people on trial. Now, without a doubt, this trial would also serve as a warning to the nations. Because if the Lord is going to so judge his people for their sin, how would he also not judge the nations for theirs? Or we could use Peter's words from 1 Peter chapter 4, where he tells the church, Therefore, it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? But right now, it's Israel's turn to be held accountable for her conduct before the judge and Lord of all the earth. And what was her conduct? What was her guilt? Micah simply calls it transgression and sins. And these are not incredibly specific terms, but they are gravely serious. Transgression carries this idea of of breaking covenants. It's a way of expressing rebellion, in this case of Israel, against its covenant Lord. They have turned their backs on the covenant that God has made with them, on the graciousness of their God to them, to bring them into relationship with himself. And sins is closely tied to that idea of transgression, where it emphasizes the failure to live up to those covenant stipulations. If we want to summarize it very basically, Israel has failed to do what they would have professed in Deuteronomy 6. They have not loved the God who redeemed them, who brought them out of the house of slavery. They have had no desire of being holy, just as the God who has called them himself is holy. And while he doesn't get even, he doesn't get incredibly specific he does get a little more specific in verse 5, where he asks the question, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Now, if you notice, there's a bunch of name switching that we see going on here, and even some word switching from the first half of the verse to the second. We see Jacob stays Jacob, but Israel is replaced by Judah. Transgression stays transgression, but sin has then become high places. The different names is simply Micah's way of implicating the entire nation, not just the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is just as guilty of breaking covenant with the Lord their God. And the switching of words regarding their sin and guilt is not a mess up either. It's, it's simply a pointing even more specifically to their sin. The sin of idolatry. We see more specifics about this idolatry in verse 7 where it talks about her carved images and her idols. 
And if you were here last week, I mentioned how Samaria was the chief city of the northern kingdom of God's people. And it was an idolatrous and vile place from its very beginning. Its expertise was idolatry. It had countless high places where sacrifices, offerings, and much more were offered to any and every pagan deity. They even had two golden calves that they mocked God by saying, these are the gods who delivered you out of the hand of Egypt. And Samaria was a place where it encouraged wicked and vile practices such as cultic prostitution to continue to fuel and fund their idolatry. And the leaders of Samaria embraced it. They thrived off it. They showed zero remorse over it. And they led the people in it. And Jerusalem, despite having the temple, was just as guilty. It had its own high places, which even the faithful kings had trouble destroying and leaving in piles of rubble. And even the worship within the temple as the prophets make clear, as Micah will make clear as we continue to go, was plagued by false worship and corrupt practices exposing the people's idolatry. And so God's accusation that he makes is clear. And coming from him means it's undeniably true. There's no argument. His people have regularly and persistently looked for, pined after, and worshipped gods and idols that were not the Lord. What a devastating accusation of guilt that is declared over the people of God. You have worshipped gods who are not me. But what a devastating accusation of guilt this is also for us. Because no, we may not be bowing down before golden images or even engaging in some of the same shameless acts that we see Micah exposing of the northern kingdom. But in no way does it mean we are innocent of idolatry. We can look no further than Romans 1, which Dr. Trammell read for us just moments ago. We're especially at the end, in verses 29 through 30, we get a list of sins that flow out of an idolatrous heart. For idolatry does not merely produce the sexual sins, which we often and rightly point to when we go to Romans chapter 1. It also points to the sins in the latter half that we often downplay or ignore. For it is from an idolatrous heart, a heart seeking to worship anything and everything other than God, that we see things like covetousness, strife, deceit, Gossip, slander, disobedience to parents. I don't know if that's one we would usually put on the radar of idolatry fuels disobedience. Or those last list of sins that always hits heaviest. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We need the word of God to expose such sins in us as well as the underlying idolatry that is feeding them. We need to be confronted with the harsh reality of words here from Micah, as well as words like Psalm 115.8. Those who make idols become like them, and so do all who trust in them. 
And then we need to daily repent of such idolatry and flee to Christ for mercy. Finally then, though, the scene closes from the accusation that is being declared to the verdict that gets delivered. For this point, I'll I'll be brief, not only for the sake of time, but also because the word of God makes it pretty obvious what the verdict is. The punishment for Samaria's crime is going to fit. There will be no accusations of injustice on the part of God. Samaria, that other city on a hill, that city that would oftentimes glow with a hue of green because the valley around it was lush with green pastures, it would be completely overthrown in God's judgment. The Assyrian army who earlier Israel was probably thinking was going to be the recipients of this was going to be the tool by which God would judge his people for their idolatry and sin. The cascading effect of creation almost becoming undone under the authority and power of God is only going to continue and sweep up Samaria in its path. But to summarize what we see in Micah, I think there's three points of emphasis that that reveal both the realities and also, I think, warnings for the people of God. First is the devastation. It says in verse 6, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. What's striking here is not so much that Samaria's devastation is physical, Because if anything, the physical part is the least concerning. Now, Samaria as as a city, as a people, is going to be completely undone when all is said and done. What she thought was her glory will now be her shame. What she thought was going to bring her security and prosperity and blessing was going to instead leave her empty and desolate with nothing left in her hands. She would actually become an afterthought, which history reveals to be the case. Because when Assyria invaded during Micah's lifetime, they actually didn't raise the city to the ground. But instead, they transformed it. They made it a full-fledged province of Assyria, filled with the Assyrian gods, filled with the Assyrian immoralities and pagan deities. They made it a new vineyard bearing no resemblance to what it once was. Samaria in its devastation would be altogether forgotten. And we find here that idolatry can and only will lead to devastation. It cannot and it will not bring any of the fulfillment or the blessing that it so falsely promises. But second, we see the destruction All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. And again, we see this this destruction has nothing to do with the city itself, its walls or its fortresses. It has everything to do instead with its idols, its idolatry, and the hollow treasures that the people have been hoarding and holding and worshiping instead of the Lord their God. The gods that they traded the Lord for are going to be crushed. The wealth that they so trusted in and built their lives upon was about to be consumed. Their idols would be no more. The same Lord who would see the mountains melt under his feet is going to do the same 
these worthless gods made out of the people's most prized treasures. The system they built, the system they celebrated, and the system they depended on was about to come crashing down. All would be destroyed in judgment by the Lord himself, the one and only God. So we're reminded that not only does idolatry lead to devastation, it also leads to destruction. Its fruit is destruction, and so are its wages. For the Lord himself is not going to tolerate, but will tear down the idols of his people. And third, we see humiliation. Where it closes with, for the, from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. We see that the, the immorality that was rampant in Samaria brought no shame to the people. There was too much to gain from the idolatry business to stop doing it. They failed to see the, the, the crazy absurdity of the very images that they're worshiping being paid for by the debauchery and the immorality. And instead they turned a blind eye to it and encouraged it to continue. And the Lord was going to bring humiliation upon them, where they would see the money that they earned, the money that they used to build their gods, would now be used to fund the idolatry of the foreign nations about to devastate them. The people of Samaria would learn in humiliating fashion just how powerless, impotent, worthless their gods truly were. The sacrifices that they had spent the wealth that they had poured out would turn up empty. They were about to reap what they had sown. And we're reminded that idolatry can only lead us to humiliation. It is a hopeless pursuit. It will never reap the blessing, but only the curse. And this verdict of idolatry, this verdict of God's judgment, whether it's in the hearts of his people or in the hearts of all mankind anywhere, is judgment. That's the verdict God has declared. Because God alone is worthy to be worshipped. He has no rival. He stands alone as the only true God. And all of us need to be confronted with the reality of God's judgment against idolatry. And we need to acknowledge our guilt in failing, like his people in the Old Covenant, to live up to what we have professed, of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need to see our folly as Romans 1 declares it, exchanging the glory of the immortal God to serve the creature instead of the creator. We do need to learn to fear and to tremble at the reality of what our sin and idolatry deserves, the eternal judgment of the holy and eternal God. But we also need to know that that is not the end. There is still hope in the midst of certain judgment. Because the good news of the gospel is that the Lord and judge of all the earth did descend. No, he did not come to tread the high places or to make the earth tremble beneath him. But instead he came to take God's righteous and holy judgment against the very idolatry of his people, to take their sin of idolatry upon himself, to be sin, 
the one who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The verdict of our guilt, the verdict of our judgment was declared, but it was declared on him as our substitute. So that we, by God's grace, would not be required to pay the price that our idolatry and sin deserves. And so it is because of Christ that we not need fear or feel the terror of God's judgment, but instead can find the strength in Christ by his spirit to mortify the sin of idolatry, to put it to death. We find and are given the strength to love God as we should and to worship him as he is due. And then we also find the strength and the assurance to come to his throne of grace in humble repentance when we so often fail. And have the promise and the confidence that we will receive his abundant mercy for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And so may this reality of God's certain judgment against idolatry move us not into further idolatry, move us not into cowering out of fear, but into a God-glorifying, Christ-honoring, and spirit-following direction. May it lead us not away from God, but in a full-out sprint towards him, and away from those idols that our hearts so foolishly are prone to pursue. May it lead us to sing afresh, the words of the psalm that we just finished singing. Though sending judgments for their sin, he pardoned graciously. Exalt the Lord and worship him. The Holy One is he. Let us pray. Our God, we do confess to you our sin. We know that you are the only rock. We know that you are the one and true God. And we even know that sin deserves your judgment. And yet how often are we chasing after the idols of this world, the idols of our own hearts, and turning from you, the source of blessing, the only one worthy of worship. Thank you for Jesus, our judge who has descended and taken the punishment for our idolatry and sin. May we be ever more encouraged this morning to run to him, to seek refuge in him, to know that your judgment has been poured out in full on him. And then may we walk away renewed in his strength, empowered by your spirit, to worship you as you are due, to worship you as you are ought, to love you with heart, soul, mind, and strength. For the glory of your name we pray. In Christ's name, amen.